Uh, for those of us who are still in here, would you turn in your uh, Bibles to Daniel chapter 9? And we're going to read the first 19 verses. We're also going to go through them with each section. So we're going to do both, primarily because this is such a, a really important section in the book of Daniel, just uh, crucial. And so I want us to just read it and read it and read it and read it and just really be aware of this, uh, this passage and this message. Daniel chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas! O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel was, has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city which is called by your name. For we're not presenting our supplication before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, 
Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Our Father, as we turn to you, we feel as though we have just spent the last few minutes praying, for we have been praying the very words of Daniel the prophet. Praying these words back to you, recognizing, O God, that these words are as true today as they were in his day. And we also cry out to you, O God, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action. We need you now, O God, to guide our meditation, to guide our thoughts, to direct our thoughts that they would follow after you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Would you, O God, please oversee this preaching of your word? Would you also work in the hearts of our children that are in children's worship? We plead with you, Lord, that you would remember your covenant promises which you made to Abraham, our father, when you said to him, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Would, be, would you be God to our children? And would you bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even this morning? And for us, Lord, would you change us? For Jesus' sake, amen. I, I use the phrase uh, this morning that our journey through Daniel feels like, to me, like a, a 5K sprint. Um, we got a long way to go, but man, we're going at a, at a, a super rapid pace, and uh, it's been good. We're actually slowing down, and we're going to take two weeks to go through Daniel 9, so, so, but we'll be right back at it. Um, the theme of Daniel is building God's kingdom while living in man's. We recognize that the, the people of Judah had been taken into captivity, and they were in a foreign land, and yet they were required, even while they're there, to begin to build God's kingdom and to work in that way. And they were taken into captivity as discipline that God was bringing upon their lives. The timing here, Daniel chapter 9, is, is probably about the same time as chapter 6. And if you remember the, the events of uh, Daniel chapter 6, where uh, Daniel is uh, cast into the lion's den. And do you remember why he was thrown into the lion's den? Because he was praying when he wasn't supposed to, praying to God when he was supposed to pray only to Darius. And so he's thrown into this lion's den, right? For praying. What was he maybe praying? Is it conceivable what he was praying was just exactly this. He was, he was noticing what was going on. It's the same time frame. And this is what he's praying when he's on his, on his knees in the upper chamber of his house and he's seen and he's thrown into the den for praying such a prayer. But what's he praying? He's praying for God's people, right? He's praying for the people of God who are in captivity. He's praying for the church. That's what we see here is Daniel Praying for the church. While building God's kingdom, living in man's, he prays for the church. Uh, think about church for just a moment. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which is a combination of two words. Uh, ek, meaning out of, and klesis, which would be uh, a call, to be called out. The church is those who have been called out for a relationship with God. That's who the church is. So the church, when did it begin? Now, sometimes we'll think of it as beginning in, in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament, and that's, well, that's when the New Covenant church begins, but the church began earlier. Who's the first person who was called out for a relationship with God? Who was the first person? 
<laughs> we'll go there, right? Adam. That's when the church began, with the creation of Adam, as, as God called him out of the dust, and then called him out of just being dust and in a form, and breathed into his nostril the breath of life to become a living being to relate to God. He became the first church, the beginning of the church. And there was expansion quickly as God took Eve from the rib and, and began to build the church. And God would build his church even there. And, and so we see this as the, the beginning of the church. God continues to grow the church. And, and uh, to this church, he begins to make a distinction. And he says at the, at the time of the fall, in speaking to Satan, that there would be this, this division. He says that I will put enemy between you, that is Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, so that even among the, the children of men there would be two. There would be those who were the followers of Satan, and those who were the followers of the woman, or the followers of Jehovah. And those who were the followers of Jehovah would be the church of God. And he begins to make this distinction, and they, they begin to blend this distinction. God br- brings uh, the, the flood. And in the flood, he calls out Noah. And Noah's family. Not all of those are saved, right? We know that one of them was not for sure. And so we, we see this distinction that God continues to make and that he sets apart Noah and his family and then calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land that God would show him and, and then calls out uh, his son Isaac and then calls out Isaac who has the two sons, Jacob and Esau, but he only calls Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which is... The church in the Old Testament, Israel. But Israel doesn't say united. For we see after Solomon that the the, the kingdom becomes divided. And the the northern ten tribes become Israel. And the southern two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, become Judah. Judah, that's the long form of the Jews. Those are of Judah. And so that's the southern two tribes. The northern two tribes continue in disobedience. And they are taken away. And they're not brought back. But the two... Southern tribes are taken off into, eventually taken off into uh, uh, Babylon, and they're subjugated for a time and, and eventually come back. Now, they're still oppressed when they come back, but they come back. And this is the church in the Old Testament. This is a church that uh, Daniel is praying for. But it also involves us, because as having gone back into the land, they're back in Jerusalem, they continue to be oppressed, and then the Messiah comes, Right? And what does Jesus do in building his church? He begins to do something very unique, and he calls people to himself from Judah and from the Gentiles and from Israel or Samaria as it became known. And he calls them to himself. And so he's got Jews and Gentiles together in one church, right? That's what Ephesians chapter 3 is telling us, is the great mystery of God that uh, Paul was to be proclaiming. It's the church. I think as we look at Daniel and we understand what he's praying, we can learn how to pray for the church. To do that, we have to begin. To pray for the church, we begin with self-examination. It's kind of popular and, and really kind of easy to criticize today, right? And we see it all around us. Criticism is just, just happening all the time. Um, no matter what. Uh, the government decides to do, no matter what the president or Congress or, or uh, the, the Supreme Court, doesn't make any difference. Whatever decision they make, it's always wrong, right? I mean, I think about becoming a president. If, if you have a landslide, you know, wouldn't you think it's almost a landslide if you get like 55% of the vote? It's like, wow, that's kind of a huge, huge majority. You know what that means is you become president and 45% of the people don't want you, right? What a great start. 
is you automatically know 45% of them will probably hate just about everything that you do and, and are going to write about it today, right? We're going to criticize everything that's done, no matter what it is. One of the things that we've seen within COVID is that uh, no matter what decisions we make as we try to mitigate COVID, it's wrong. doesn't make any difference. No matter what it is, we can always think of something else that could have been done. And of course, if I can think of something else that could have been done, that's the right thing that should have been done because I thought of it, right? right? And so, so criticism is... Is, is very common, it's very popular. But criticism against the church goes even farther, right? I mean, we, 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 we live in an age in which it is so easy to criticize the church. I mean, what's the first thing we say? The church is filled with hypocrites. I mean, we just know that, right? It's almost like a creed that we would recite. What do you believe, Christian? I believe the church is filled with hypocrites, right? And, and, and we say that, and, and there are hypocrites in the church, Right? Aren't there hypocrites in the world too? Nobody's afraid of being in the world. No one's afraid of rejecting the church because there are hypocrites outside the church. But it just, it's, it's safe and it's easy and it's popular. And even Christian writers, it's really cool to just kind of point out the bad things about the church. We want to blame the church for all these great wars, personally. Like what? You know, I'm not sure that I really see that many wars. Even when we talk about the Crusades, I'm not really sure that the church began the Crusades. I, that's not the way that I understand history or have, have seen that taking place. I see something entirely different. But we, it's, it's, it's cool to do that. So we, we blame the church. We criticize the church. Well, the church, you know, it's gone liberal. It's just so liberal. It's just a horrible thing. The church is just too liberal. The church is just way too conservative. You know, they're just too worried about keeping things the same and, and they're out of touch with reality. It doesn't matter. Which side we want to criticize the church? And it just goes on and on and on, right? That it's so easy for us to bring criticism against the church. But you know, that isn't where Daniel started. Daniel could have stood up and said, yeah, you folks from Judah and Israel are just a bunch of losers, right? You're just horrible. But you notice he didn't say that. He used the first person plural because he began with introspection. He began looking at himself to see what was going on. Are some of you familiar with a SWOT analysis? Organizations will do this from time to time. It's also a very good thing to do just personally. A SWOT analysis. And no, it isn't. Uh, I did something wrong. I did something wrong. That's the, it's S-W-O-T. Uh, the S is strengths. So you begin to look at the organization of yourself. We're going to work at it from organization. We've done this as, as elders. We'll probably be doing it again in the not-too-distant future to where we look at the, the Church of Providence and, and we, we look, what are the strengths that we see in the church? And then we look at the, what are the weaknesses that we see. And you see, strengths and weaknesses are both introspection. We're looking at the things within our organization that are good and those which need to be improved. And it's that, that honest self-assessment of where we are, which is where we begin. But then we turn our attention to opportunities. What are the, the possibilities for us to do great things for Christ? What are the opportunities that we have to serve our community better? And then we have our threats. What are the things that can stop us from accomplishing that? The obstacles that we will face. We would have uh, obstacles instead of threats, but then it would be swoo. And it just doesn't have the, the, the ring of swat, right? So, so we... We, we utilize that. And I just love that. And what I love about a SWOT analysis is it begins precisely the same place that Daniel begins, with introspection. I don't start out with the outside, with the circumstances around me. I start out with what's inside me. And introspection, to be effective, has got to be honest. 
I've got to see what's truly there. And I have to deal with what's truly there if it's going to be an effective tool in my life. An example of that is given by Jesus when he tells the parable of, uh, on prayer. Remember he tells the parable about the two men who are praying? You've got the um, Pharisee and you've got the uh, tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Verse 11, he talks about the Pharisee. He says, The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What does the Pharisee possess? Right? There's no honest self-evaluation, is there at all? No, he's not looking inside, he's looking outside. He's looking at them, and he's not using, remember I talk about the preacher pose? This is the preacher pose. It's not this, it's this. That it has to begin right here. And he isn't looking right there. He's looking out at everybody else to find out what's wrong with him. Whereas the tax collector, in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance off, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He recognized how he failed. He saw how he did not match up with the law of God. He saw in himself a need not to justify himself, not to criticize, but a need for mercy and for forgiveness. And that's where he begins. Introspection is essential when we even think about Jesus' great words of invitation. When he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where does that start? It starts by wondering, is he talking to me? Am I weary? Am I heavy laden? Do I feel the burden upon me? Do I need Jesus? And that's where it starts, that honest introspection of recognizing what I need. As we think about how we can examine ourselves, let's look at the first four verses of chapter 9. We'll read these again. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's reading the scripture. And he looks at the scripture and he sees we're just about there. We're about to see the completion of of the desolations. We're about to see the end of our exile. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. You see, he begins, first of all, with his own personal relationship with God. He begins, first off, by having that that heart, like Joel would say in in chapter 2, verse 11, rend your heart and not your garments. So that he has his, the, the ashes and the sackcloth and the fasting is all the externals, but he's showing us that he has rent that heart inside, that internally he has turned to God, he has seen his failure. He begins by his own confession, and he lays this all out before God. He began with that introspection. And we, if we are to self-examine, to have self-examination, 
We have to begin by sitting before God's Word. That's where Daniel began. In verses 1 and 2, we see him sitting before the Word of God. In verse 2, we see that uh, he says that he observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the Word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. He was reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a contemporary. And remember Jeremiah chapter 29, we have this letter that Jeremiah wrote to those who were taken into exile. Basically wrote to Daniel. And he's reading this again. So as, as he is putting himself under the Word of God, he begins, he's reading the prophets. He's familiar with the prophets and he's trying to understand them. In verse 11, we see, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. He's also been reading Moses. That is, he's been reading the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He's been reading time there, and in reading that, he, he sees where God tells the people that if you disobey, I'm going to bring on you these curses. If you obey, I'm going to bring upon you these, these blessings. And, and he recognizes what's going on. He sees what we have done has brought this on us. This is nothing but the discipline of God that he's bringing into our lives. And so he, he is aware that uh, he's read the prophets, he's read Moses, he's also read the historical book in verse 7, or verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. He had read the historical books. He knew of how the prophets had come at different times to talk to the kings. They had come to challenge the people. The prophets had been speaking the, the warnings of God and the invitation from God to bring about change. And so Daniel had spent time in, in all of the Old Testament. And he sat before the Old Testament. And he sat before it as the standard. For the Bible is the standard. I was trying to figure out this last week um, what the standard is for an inch. So the first thing I read is, well, it's one thirty-sixth of a yard. Okay, so what's a yard? Ready? Three feet. Okay, what's a foot? Ready? Twelve inches. I kid you not. It's like this is completely not helpful. Maybe, God forbid, but maybe the metric system makes more sense. So, so I know, I know I'm in the wrong land. I could be thrown out for that. Criticize the president's one thing, but violate and start talking good about the metric system, and I could be banished. I'll be sent to Canada maybe. But anyway, um, so what's a meter? And I found something actually really helpful. It used to be that a meter was one ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. Because that's helpful, right? Because I've walked that. I know how far that is, right? Yeah, you know, right? We've all been there. We get that. I, 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 so, so actually it, it was changed and it was uh, tied in to the speed of light. And so it was determined that a, 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 a meter is, and I have to read this, one, um, let me see, 1,299,792,450 of a second. It's the, how far does light travel in that amount of time? I mean, if I'm thinking about it, 186,000 miles, uh, yeah, that's about right. It's probably about a meter, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's where it goes. That doesn't help us at all. None of us are walking around with our, our, our pocket uh, tool that says, well, okay, I'm going to measure light speed, right? We, this is that's not going to work. So what do we do? Well, they make meter sticks, right? That's how long a meter is. 
Right? I know, that's not exact, but it's probably about that long, right? That's, that's about a meter. And that helps me, and I have a stick that tells me what a meter is. Now, I use that because that's not exactly the meter. The meter, you know, to be really, really precise, we've got to do the whole speed of light thing. But, but it's, it's really pretty close. We get it, right? The fact is, what is the actual standard of right and wrong, of truth and, and untruth? Isn't it God himself? Right? But he's less knowable than the speed of light traveling in one billionth of a second, right? It's easier to know the speed of light. But what has he done? He's given us the Word of God. He's given us Scripture, which is a standard that we can work with, we can understand, we can grasp what God has given to us by looking at that. Isaiah 66.2 tells us something of, of what our response to that standard um, can and should be. In chapter 66, verse 1, it begins by saying, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? He says, you remember who I am? Have you forgotten this? this? This is the great and the awesome God. And then he goes on, he says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look. To this one I will give my attention. To this one I will focus my attention. To whom? To him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Because as we look at the word, we recognize just what it is. That it is the standard that God has given to us. It is an awesome standard. And we tremble as we recognize what it reveals to us. Josiah the king discovered what was being revealed in 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 10. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Milkiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written Josiah trembled at the word of God. For he looked at the word as a standard and he saw that he didn't match up and the people didn't match up. As we look at the scripture as our standard, we recognize that we, we don't. If we're honest, we don't match up. It isn't actually guiding us in all of our life. We need to compare ourselves with scriptures, which is why the psalmist says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. To take that time to examine myself according to the word, that the word of God needs to be so much a part of my life that I meditate on it and I think about it and I'm aware of it. I've memorized it and it's in my mind and it becomes a filter by which I look at life and it becomes, it becomes a mirror by which I look at my own heart, by which I begin to examine myself. Are my thoughts really consistent with the word of God? Is the scripture guiding my thoughts or am I doing that which I just think is right? Is the word of God determining that which is, is right and honoring to God? Or am I hoping that the people around me are going to show me? Am I going along with my culture or am I going along with scripture? 
The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin because it is your word that will keep me from that. Not the people around me. Not the opinions of the people that I am surrounded by. Not my own feeling. But it's your word that will accomplish that in my life. Years ago, it was uh, a gentleman who was working with the youth in uh, a church that we were attending. I wasn't one of the youth, but, um, but he, he challenged the congregation with two questions one time, and I, I really appreciated those questions. The second one in particular, the first one was, how much of the Bible do you know? How much of the Bible do you know? Now, in our uh, candidates, interns, and examination committee, one of our jobs is to examine candidates for the gospel ministry on their Bible knowledge. Basically, how much of the Bible do you know? And we don't ask for a percentage. We ask them to answer a lot of almost trivial kind of questions about the Bible sometimes, right? Did we ordain you or did you come in transfer? We ordain you. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. <laughs> we love you, Chris. <laughs> He's just sat through that himself. And by the way, great news. Uh, Chris is going to preach for us on November 7th. So we'll get to know him even better. Uh, you can mark that on your calendar. Now we'll get back to the sermon. This sermon has been brought to you by Chris Peters, minister at Millersville. <laughs> Uh, we, we do appreciate you, but that's a part of what we do, and we're, we're trying to find out how much of the Bible do you know? And if I ask myself that, you know, I, I, I begin to get a feel, but the second question was haunting. And much more important, how much of what you know do you live? Hmm. Even if all I know, it's just very little I know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But am I living that? It's all I know, but I'm going to live that. I think that's much more powerful than the person who knows 90% and lives too, right? What am I living? Is the word of God really guiding my life? And if we're honest, there are so many other things that guide our life. So many other things that really move our opinions and our thoughts. And if we're honest and we compare ourselves with Scripture, we begin to see that we don't measure up. It's like the individual who laid the, uh, hung the wallpaper in his bathroom. And you go in and you look at it and you take a plumb line and you lay it down and you see that his, his, his paper is all askew. You say, well, how come? He said, well, because I laid it in accordance with the corner over here, assuming the corner was straight, but the corner wasn't straight. That's why when you do wallpaper, you always start with a plumb line and you put it according to the plumb line and you ignore whether or not the walls and the corners are straight. This is now true. And when we begin to examine ourselves with that plumb line of the Word of God, we find out that we're askew. We're missing something. I have to begin by sitting before God's Word, but I can't stop there. The second thing that Daniel does is he bows before God's face. We need to bow before God's face. Look at verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Verse 2, he looked at the scripture. Verse 3, he sets his face on the Lord his God. Jeremiah 29, I mentioned this earlier. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel, and he wrote a letter in chapter 29 to uh, the Jews who were taken into captivity. And we read in verse uh, uh, 10, For thus says the Lord, 
When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. This is what Daniel just said that he had read, right? He had just read that it was going to be 70 years. This is where he read it. Right there, this promise from God, 70 years and I'm going to bring you back. And then God goes on, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Do you see what Daniel's doing in verse 3? He's fulfilling verse 13. He's living in obedience to verse 13. Verse 13 says, if you seek for me, you will find me. And Daniel says, I'm going to seek him. He says, I gave my attention to him, which means to set his face. Can you imagine having personal devotions in which you begin your personal devotions by setting your face on God? We tend to have devotions by reading the Bible and saying some prayers, right? What if instead, as I'm reading the Bible, I am continually setting my face to God, that as I open the Scripture, I am hearing the voice of God, and I am knowing that I am meeting with God. These are not words upon a page. They are the revelation of the true and the living God as He speaks to my heart. What if as I pray, I'm more focused upon God, whom I'm seeking, than the person I'm praying for? And my attention is upon Him and upon His face. To set my face upon God. To not be satisfied just with reading the scripture, but I must find God. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in these you have eternal life, but it's these that testify of me and you're unwilling to come to me that you may live. That they were satisfied just with the word of God and they missed the word of God. Jesus himself. Oh, may God protect us from such an error. As we pray for the church, may we seek God's face. May we bow before His face. Begin with self-examination, sitting before God's Word, bowing before His face, and then be certain that we must align ourselves with truth. Verses 5-14. through Truth. I use this definition frequently, and I'll continue to use it until you can point out where it's wrong, which would be great, or someone else can, or maybe by my own thoughts I'll figure it out. But so far I haven't found that, and I've used it for couple decades thus far, um, it seems to fit. Truth is God's perspective. That's different than saying God's perspective is truth, right? Truth is God's perspective. What does God think about something? That's the truth of it. Now, this has incredible application to you and I when I tell you that God calls you a saint. What's God's perspective on you? That's truth. But truth is God's perspective. Which means, right, the only way I can know it is if he reveals it. Because it's his perspective. I can't just bump into his perspective, right? He's got to tell me what his perspective is. He has to reveal it to me. And he's done that in two different ways. One of the ways that he's revealed to us his truth is in creation. And one of the things I love about worshiping uh, in, a, in, a, in an environment, I mean, some, some worship centers, and Patrick and I have talked about this, you know, have no windows and it's dark, so that way they can control the lighting. It can be just right to set the, the tone. I love having the windows from the standpoint that we can look out, and, and there's creation. There's the revelation of God, right? It's right there. God has stopped giving us scripture, but he hasn't stopped revealing himself, because there's still creation. And God reveals himself in general fashion, in creation. And from that, we have such points of knowledge as math. 
The book of Numbers is not a book about math. Who knew? Right? We learn math from observation of the way that God has made this world, right? We understand science by observing God's creation and the way that He has made it to work and by being honest with what we observe. And as we're honest with what we observe, we draw certain conclusions where we're able to understand them. And we've done amazing things. Did you know that we actually landed a person on the moon and got him back? That's crazy stuff, right? How did that happen? It's not in the Bible, but it's still truth because God has revealed it to us. It requires our mind to be engaged with how God has revealed truth to us. He's revealed to us history, which is the providence of God that he has shown throughout this world, is God's revelation of truth, language. There's no book of language that tells us about language. It's not a, in, in the Bible. We learn language by observation, right? And we even see language evolve and, and, and adjust. And, and, and the meaning of words begin to change. And we're able to communicate with people who have different thoughts and use different sounds to express those thoughts. But we're able to interpret that. Why? By observing God's general revelation. But that's not where he ended. He also gave us scripture, special revelation, where he reveals to us something more. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question three asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what uh, man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the scriptures are primarily telling us. Who is God and how ought we to serve him? Right? Is that an okay summary? That's what the scriptures tell me. Truth involves our minds. We have to think. And it's revealed to us by God in creation and in Scripture. Let's read verses 5 through 14 with this in mind of how this calls us to align ourselves with truth. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To you, Lord, the Lord our God, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, but we've rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written to the in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept this calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. 
There are basically two truths that, that he lays out there that, to, to give to us to align ourselves with, aren't there? There are two truths. The truths are, we've sinned, God hasn't. Right? We've been faithless, God's been faithful. And that's, in essence, the two truths that he simply goes over and over and over and over again to remind us of this reality. We are each guilty. We are each one individually guilty. Did you notice the general nature of the confession? He doesn't give a specific iniquity we've committed, right? He does say that we have committed against we have committed sin against light because he says we had the prophets who have spoken to us. But he doesn't give a specific he doesn't say we all broke the Sabbath. He doesn't list any of the Ten Commandments individually, right? He deals with them in general because he's talking about the general principle of the people of God. And the reality is we've committed all of them, but we haven't all committed all of them, we, right? It's possible that all of us have committed some of them. Now I'm going to get all twisted up with my words, so I've got to let that go. Follow your notes, Vince. This is a good idea. It keeps everybody safe, so... But as I look at that general nature of the confession, it becomes really instructive to me, particularly when I think about what's written by two of his contemporaries. Ezekiel wrote about this in Ezekiel chapter 18. As he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now, I, we don't believe in the dictation theory of inspiration. That is to say, we don't believe that God just dictated and, and man just wrote it down. We believe that God used human instrumentality, that he worked through the personalities of the individuals to reveal to us the scripture. However, there are places in which God did dictate, in which God said, uh, write it this way. And he's very, very clear. This is one of those. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying... What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? Do you get the picture that God is not real pleased? Right? He's saying, what do you mean using this proverb, saying the fathers sin and the children are judged for it? In other words, how dare you use such a reprehensible proverb before my people? And he goes on. God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. What's he saying? He's making it very clear that I'm not judged for my father's sins. God does not hold me accountable for the failings of my father. God holds me accountable for my own failings. And isn't that nice? Because there's plenty of those, right? I don't need to, to, to have some false guilt be heaped upon me that I'm guilty for my father's sins. And he's, he's very clear. God says by his own life, by his own existence, this must be thrown away. This horrible proverb. And you see, logically... It makes sense. Is there a corporate mind here today? Just one mind that's, that's all of our thoughts? Is there one will of us, the people of God gathered here today, that, that our one will is worshiping God? Goodness, no. But they're a bunch of individuals. And each individual is 
relating to God and worshiping God directly to different variances of success. But we're all doing that individually. And so God speaks of it as a corporate people. Now, is it true that everyone here has sinned? Yeah, I mean, that's the practical implication of total depravity, right? We've all sinned, and we still all sin. Is it true that we've all sinned and, and we've failed to follow the word of God, right? Well, sin is what? Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Well, yeah, so we've all violated the law of God. We know better, but we've still sinned, right? Yeah, that's a general truth, but that doesn't make us all guilty for any one or all sins as a group. There is no group. There is no identity of a body. There are individuals who relate to God. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah, also the uh, contemporary, and we've already looked at that, um, says the same thing. And he says it, interestingly, right before he tells us about the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 31, we have the beautiful uh, uh, expression of what the, the new covenant is going to be. In 29 and 30, the two verses before that, this is what he has to say. He says, in those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. These two contemporaries of Daniel make this statement and give this instruction. And so what is Daniel confessing? He's confessing the fact that we as your people have each individually sinned against you. And he's pointing that reality out. And he's not going into the specifics. But what does that then mean? What does that mean for us. He's already looked at this, this, this section where he says, well, if you disobey, the curse will be on you. And Daniel is aware that the curse was upon them. You see, we have forfeited all rights to God's blessings by our disobedience. And for us to begin to understand what that means, there is a, a scene in the, the musical Hamilton that uh, I, I just love, and there's one song. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, what's going on as we, we look at this. Um, he's telling the story of what happened in, in uh, Hamilton's life. Uh, Eliza, his wife, was away uh, with uh, uh, her parents, and he was there working hard, and there was a woman that came along and said, you know, my husband is abusing me. Would you please take care of me? You're an attorney. Would you be able to do that? He says, yes, and then he ends up having an affair with this woman, and then her husband comes and said, hey, you've been having an affair with my wife, and I know it, but uh, so give me some money, and also seem to say, and you can continue the affair as well. And so Hamilton eventually gets himself free, but he's paying this money, this blackmail money that he's, he's giving. And uh, all of a sudden, some individuals come to him from the rival party, and they say, hey, we think that you're stealing from the treasury. He shows them that he's not stealing, but he is having an affair. And even that begins to be revealed, and he's terrified. And he says, well, I'm going to be accused of squandering uh, public funds, which I haven't done, so I will come out. And he writes this big explanation of what he had done, which is had an affair. And he gives all the details of the affair. And it ruined him politically. Um, 
But in the play, it begins to show how his wife Eliza dealt with learning that. And if you think of what it would be like as, as a wife learning of the unfaithfulness of a husband and just the, the deep burning, and, and she has a, a right response. Now, we don't know exactly how Eliza responded, and that's a part of what uh, uh, Lynn Miranda is, is, is trying to, to help us understand is what she was facing. And here's what she wrote. She says, I'm burning the memories, burning the letters that might have redeemed you. You forfeit all rights to my heart. You forfeit the place in our bed. You sleep in your office instead with only the memories of when you were mine. You can feel the emotion, the betrayal. I don't think that the author of Hamilton understood the covenant nature of marriage, but he presented it there beautifully. For there are responsibilities on both sides, and when those responsibilities are violated, they have rendered that null and void, that covenant. And the blessings brought from the other are no longer necessarily brought for us to grasp that we have forfeited all rights to the blessings of God. We have forfeited all right to the sun rising. We have forfeited all right to health. Let's be honest. We live as though we have a right to all of these things, as though we have a right to being blessed. We believe that we have a right to prosperity. We believe that we have a right to good health. We believe that we have a right to success. We believe that we have a right to freedom. But we have forfeited that right to God. We have no such rights. There's nothing by which we can demand of God, you must provide for me. For we have forfeited them all by our covenant unfaithfulness because we have broken His law. This is what it is to align ourselves with the truth that we are guilty. Not guilty in a real quick confession, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, yeah, aren't we happy? But in the reality that I bear in myself true moral guilt from which I have forfeited all blessings of God. I have no right to the kindness of God. None whatsoever. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, is one of the things that Daniel is coming to grips with. He sees... That God says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe and to do all the commandments and his statutes which, with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 32, we read what those, one of those curses is. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. This is the reality of what Daniel is having to face. Remember, uh, the, the previous two chapters happened before this. They happened even before there was the change in the kingdoms, and he learned about the fact that the people of God were going to continue to be oppressed. Why were they going to be oppressed? He read it in the Scripture, and he says it's because we forfeited all rights to his blessings. By our disobedience, we have nothing with which we can commend ourselves to God. We have to lay aside the sense of entitlement 
that we have to health, to success, and even to freedom. Instead, we need to follow the advice of Rock of Ages, the third verse, which tells us, nothing in my hand I bring. No more. I can't come to God and say, yeah, I've sinned, but I also did these good things, right? Isaiah tells us that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Nothing in my hand I bring. I lift them up, open palm, with nothing there. I have no way that I can commend myself to you, O God. Simply to thy cross I cling. This is my only hope, that Jesus has died for me. I've got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. Nothing. As a matter of fact, he goes on, he says, Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. These are not just nice poetic words. These are the true implications of aligning ourselves with truth. That I am guilty, truly guilty, in desperate need of a Savior. But I must not stop there. Because I must also remember God's mercy. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. Daniel never loses sight of the mercy of God. He uses the term loving kindness, which is the Hebrew word hesed, which is also translated as, as mercy at different times. I like R. Laird Harris um, in the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says this about it. He says, in reality, the word chesed has the idea of covenant loyalty. Think about that for just a moment. Is it mercy that sometimes I think of as in violation of covenant loyalty? Or is it covenant loyalty? Covenant loyalty. Do you remember the event in, in uh, Genesis chapter 15 in which God is entering into a covenant with, with uh, Dan, uh, who? Abraham, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to list every person in the Bible before I get to, 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 to Abraham. He's entering into this covenant relationship with, with Abraham, and he tells Abraham, I'm going to show a covenant. And Abraham goes out and he gets the animals, and he cuts them in half and lays them side by side because the covenant ritual would be between peers, if we were entering into a covenant, that you and I would stand next to each other and we would walk between these pieces of these slain animals and we would declare, thus be to me if I fail to keep my terms of this covenant. So it becomes a life and death relationship. And so there's Abraham, and he's cut these pieces, and I'm sure he's thinking, okay, so God and I are going to walk between the pieces. Here I go. But God takes Abraham, and he sets him off to the side. He says, you just be over here, and you watch. And God himself, in the form of the, the, the censer and the, the torch, he himself, what I see is an image of God the Father and God the Son, together, they walk between the pieces. And they say, we will fulfill both sides of this covenant. We will be absolutely obedient to it. We will provide the blessing and we will suffer the curses ourselves. God the Father, God the Son, passing between those pieces. God saying, so be it to me if I fail to uphold both sides of this covenant. 
that he has sworn that he will be the one who completes it. And he is loyal to that covenant. He shows chesed to his people. He's loyal to that commitment that he made that he would obey on our behalf and he would suffer on our behalf that we might receive salvation. Will you trust that God today? And dare I say, please, that as you face your own personal guilt, will you turn to him and say, Lord, will you please forgive me? I've got nothing to commend myself, but will you forgive me because of Jesus? He obeyed and he suffered. Put your trust in him today. And then pray for God's mercy to his church. Pray for his mercy for you. Because every day we need that mercy. We need him to be covenantally loyal. Pray for that. For your children. As we pray for our children, I remember when when Patrick was still in the womb, beginning to... Yeah, then I look at him. God, don't deal with our children according to our obedience. Please. Please, please, oh God. Deal with them according to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Deal with them according to the covenant loyalty of Jesus Christ. That's what I desperately need. And that's what I plead with him to accomplish on behalf of my children. That's what I plead with him to accomplish on behalf of our children. As you pray for our children in Sunday school, in in children's worship, in Providence Kids, in crew, in young adults, all the time, pray that God will be covenantally loyal. It is God who said to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And we plead with him to be faithful to that promise according to his mercies which are found in Jesus Christ and pray for his mercy for all who believe. We're too quick to condemn one another and to criticize one another and too slow to ask God to show his mercy in the lives of each of his people. Acts 2, 39 Peter has just preached the great Pentecostal sermon. People have been, as the King James says, cut to the quick. And they've said, what must we do? He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? For the promise is for you. The promise of his covenant loyalty is for you. The promise of his covenant loyalty is for your children. The promise of his covenant loyalty is for all who are far off. The promise of his covenant loyalty is for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. We pray for the chesed, the mercy of God, to be shown. Some of you are saying, goodness gracious, Pastor, that's only two of your three points, and the third point has three subpoints." Oh my goodness. Folks, settle in. No, it's going to be much, much shorter. Um, very simple, because really we're just going to look at verse 19. Verse 15 through 19, he's summarizing. Verse 19, he really gets to the heart. There are three simple requests which he gives. O Lord, hear. He begins with that. O Lord, 
here. May I remind you of Jeremiah 29, 12? Remember, Daniel is thinking about this verse when he writes, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will what? Listen to you. I will hear you. He will hear. Ask him, God, O Lord, hear. And he says, I will hear. Ask him, O Lord, forgive. And remember his promise. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. From Jeremiah chapter 31. We say, O Lord, forgive. He says, I will forgive. And we say, O Lord, take action. And he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. O Lord, take action. He says, I will take action. When I candidated at a church in Florida years ago, 2009, um, on the candidating service. So when you go to candidate... Both the church and the pastor, like on best behavior, right? You want to get everything right. Um, and I remember telling you when I candidated here that I was going to preach to you my, my absolute most normal sermon. Uh, I wasn't going to try to go with my best or my worst. I'll just go with the most normal. This is normal. Well, there I was doing the same thing. Well, as they're playing, the song leader is going along, and he's just really into it, you know, trying to really get it going, and he breaks a string. <sighs> so he sets that beside, but he was smart. He had a spare. So he gets out his spare guitar, and he's just playing along, and bang, there goes another one. And he's just distressed. And it's right before I'm preaching, and I step up, and the first thing that I say is, I'm so glad that happened. I love it when we make mistakes in worship. I really do. I think it's fantastic, because it reminds us that our worship is acceptable to God because of Jesus, not because of us. It's not because we get it right. We're working hard to build God's kingdom while living in man's, right? It's what we want to do. We are striving to accomplish that. We want to do that. But frankly, we fail. And sometimes it isn't just a, a nebulous thing like we broke a guitar string. Sometimes it's that we have sinned against God. And when we fail, it shows us that we need to be praying for the church because we're all going to do that. And we pray for the church by beginning with self-examination, by aligning ourselves with truth, and finally, by asking for deliverance. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, part of me, I just want to confess for just the, the length of time, um, and I thank you for the patience of your people, and that it isn't just patience, but they are people who long to hear your word, and they want, Lord, to know you better, and somehow you've chosen my preaching to accomplish that. And I pray, O oh God, that you would overcome my failings and the length of time that we have spent, but, Lord, that you would secure in each of our hearts the truth of this message, of how important it is that we would pray for your church. We ask you, O oh God, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for the glory of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.